Welcome to the Talking Immigration Podcast. Immigration is a complex issue. Most of us have strong emotions, but don't actually know the details of how immigration actually works. In this podcast, I interview immigration experts to teach us about the types of immigration, limits, costs, enforcement, and more. I'm Katarina, your host. Let's talk immigration. Hi, everyone. Today, we welcome Mary Jo Dudley to talk with us about seasonal work visas and especially agriculture as one of the various industries in which immigrants can legally work in temporary positions in the United States. Mary Jo is the director of the Cornell Farm Worker Program and a faculty member in the Cornell Department of Global Development. Thank you for being with us, Mary Jo. So happy to be with you. So this year, more than ever, I think we've become much more aware of the value of essential workers. And I know immigrants play a crucial role in fulfilling some of those essential positions. So I thought maybe we could start by, if you could help us get a sense of how many immigrants work in essential positions such as agriculture, maybe especially in this last year. Sure. Just to give you a little bit of a framework, um, According to the National Center for Farmworker Health, there are approximately two to three million migratory and seasonal agricultural workers in the United States, and that doesn't include their spouses or children. Um, If we look at that, most of them, 75% of all agricultural workers are foreign-born, and most of them, actually 69%, were born in Mexico. And close to half of the foreign-born agricultural workers, about 40%, have spent 20 or more years living in the U.S. So if we look big picture, um, according to Farmworker Justice, approximately 70% of the workforce is undocumented. Oh, wow. Um, So, and just a little bit more, I think that the health concerns have risen to the fore recently and only 14% of farm workers in the U.S., according to the Department of Labor's Net National Agricultural Workers Survey, reported being covered by employer-provided health insurance. So only 14% have employer-provided health insurance. And 46 of those, of that 14%, actually reported that they were paying for their health care services out of pocket um, because of this uncertainty about insurance and documentation status. So one of the things we saw here was that um, among the first to experience COVID-19 in New York State were Latino, Indigenous, and Black farm workers. And it's combined with their role as essential workers. So because they're deemed by the federal government as essential to the country's economic and nutritive well-being, these Latino, indigenous, black farm workers that work on, in fruits and vegetables and dairy farms were told to continue work, working, although the rest of us were given statewide stay-at-home directives. So one one question that people have asked me and your audience might be interested in is why did they, if, if they were asked to continue working and they were worried about being exposed to COVID, why didn't they just not work? Why didn't they not comply? 
And I think to understand farm workers, it's really important to understand that that would mean that they would lose their employment, their their source of income, but also many farm workers live on farm provide in farm provided housing. And so they would lose their housing. They would lose their job and they would lose their housing. And it was difficult because the nature of the living and working conditions made it very difficult um, to do social distancing. And there was a a time period where um, these workers had not had access to PPE face mask. And we actually delivered two farms, over 8,000 hand-sewn face masks. Um, so what we ended up doing is typically we're, uh, we are very boots on the ground. We're, we are face-to-face interactions with farm workers. And with COVID, we had to transform that totally. Um, we fortunately had the personal cell phone numbers for 3,000 farm workers. And so we set up a system to text them information. First, we did short videos on what is COVID, how can you protect yourself? And later on, as things opened up, we we organized phone calls with uh, a, a trusted medical provider, Dr. Jose Canario, and he answered just their questions. Is it safe to send my children to school? How is it safe to go to grocery stores? What if I have a medical appointment? Um, if I am pregnant, what should I do? So we've had those calls regularly. And our most recent call was on the COVID-19 vaccine. Mm-hmm. What is it? Should I get it? Sure. So if we look at the big picture, the big picture is most farm workers, 70% are undocumented. There's a small number of workers that come just for the season. And those are what we refer to as H2A workers. These are workers that live in Mexico, Guatemala, Jamaica, and they apply to come to a specific farm for a specific time period, a beginning date and an end date. And the employer, the farmer pays for their transportation and provides uh, housing that's been inspected by the Department of Labor. So that's a very small percentage of the workers. But sometimes people wonder about immigration status. And the history of farm work is it's always been a catch point um, for those recent immigrants because farm work doesn't require you to read and write in English. Ah. It's labor that can be performed by someone who recently arrived to this country. And if we turn way back, um, former African-American sharecroppers were the first that began to migrate from state to state following the crops. And then different points of time, Italian immigrants, Portuguese immigrants, um, and Canadians coming down from Canada were also part of that flow. But it, it farm work has never required you to read and write in English. I, I think people would have to ask 
why don't businesses hire U.S. workers for these jobs? Well, there are many reasons why. It's interesting because uh, a colleague went to an unemployment office and there were people standing in line um, looking for jobs. And uh, he posed, uh, would you care to work on a farm? And um, most of the people, everybody said no. But some people uh, said they, they couldn't, they didn't have the physical stamina for the work. It's very physically demanding. Other people didn't have transportation to the farm. But I think it's the combination of it being very physically demanding work. And it has, there's a separate minimum wage for farm workers than for all other workers. So um, that's another component. Physically demanding work, and in some case, very dangerous, working with equipment, animals, tractors, um, that most people don't want to do. Sure. And even now, it's been interesting, even now with high unemployment because of COVID, businesses going out out and, and closing, um, even now, most people don't want to work on a farm. And one, one question that is important to ask is, it's physically demanding, but also it's socially denigrated. It's not considered ideal work. It's, it's very demanding. So one, one argument that I would hear is that, as you sort of implied, that farms hire immigrants because they can pay immigrants less. And so in, in a very legal way, that's very much true, right? <laughs> like, I didn't, I wasn't aware that the minimum wage was lower for farm workers. Yeah. It's not that they're paying them less because they're immigrants. They're paying them less because they're farm workers and it has, their wage structure is different. In fact, those who come in on the H-2A visa earn a higher wage, um, a much higher wage than the minimum wage for farm workers. So those are those are great jobs for for immigrants to come into um the the minimum wage here and it's set statewide okay obviously but the minimum wage for most of new york state is 12.50 an hour and the and the workers that come in through the h2a the temporary guest workers um, earn about $2 more an hour. Maybe let's talk a little bit more if we can about those H-2A visas, um, even though it's such a s- small percentage. Can you talk a little bit about how do immigrants get those visas or do do farms actively recruit for those visas? Kind yeah, of what sure. is that process of getting into that category? How does that work? So the process is initiated on the farm end. The, the farmer has to show that they, they do not have enough local labor for the harvest period. And they have to advertise in local papers, radio stations, and anyone who applies for the job, anyone, they need to offer them a job. But because it's not a job that many people are looking for, and in particular for the season, so if they're looking for people to pick apples, let's say, 
even un unemployed people don't want to take those jobs because they'll they'll they're short term and they'll lose their unemployment. Um, so the the farmer starts out with the New York State Department of Labor and shows that there is not sufficient local labor for them to harvest their crop during the harvest season. And once that is approved by the New York State Department of Labor, it's sent to the U.S. Department of Labor. And they have to show that not only they don't have enough local workers, but they have the correct housing conditions. They can offer them housing. Then once that's approved by the U.S. Department of Labor, there are a number of recruitment agencies in Mexico, Guatemala, and Jamaica. And sometimes the, they will connect with one of those and they interview workers on their end. So what they're looking for is people who have previous experience working in agriculture. They're strong and healthy enough to do this work. They haven't been in the U.S. before without a visa. And so they do their own recruitment from their end. And then they will say, okay, you need 100 workers from June 1 to November 1. And they will send those 100 workers. And they each, each worker has a contract that outlines what their job will be. That's how it works. So what that creates a little bit in the home country is there's a lot of competition for those jobs because they actually, what's interesting is that it actually, the time when we need workers here is precisely the time when workers in Mexico are not involved in the harvest. And so they're looking for work. Um, it's interesting. I was able to interview many people on the visa and they talk about coming here for this period of time, working really hard, and then they go back and they're harvesting in their home country, in Jamaica, in Guatemala, in Mexico. So these typically are people that are farm workers year round, but they match harvest time in their own country with harvest time here. And they're able to have, you know, year round employment as a farm worker. Is this process expensive for the farmer? Or for the, for it the is farm. expensive because they pay a per, they pay a recruitment fee per worker. They pay for round trip transportation per worker. And they also have to provide housing that uh, passes inspection by the local department of labor. So if you're a small farm, it would be difficult to do. It would be very expensive to do. And so it, it actually pushes, it's usually something that the bigger farms do. Okay. And of course, year round work, like dairy work, you're not eligible for this visa if you work on a dairy. Because of the time frame? Because dairy work is year round work. And this is just temporary guest workers. So it's people who only come for the season when there's a labor shortage the harvest season. Do you know about how many that tends to be? I mean, I assume it, it changes, right? Is there, can you give me an average? It changes every year, but 
just to give you a percentage, it's somewhere around five percent. I mean, it's it depends every year, it depends on every state, but it's probably somewhere between five percent and ten percent of the farm worker population are those who come on this visa. The number of people who apply for those workers changes. It's it's driven by the farm, however the farm sees their need, their labor needs. And so there isn't some type of, or maybe there is also in addition to that, a U.S. cap on the number of those types of visas? There is a U.S. cap, but they never, it's so high that they never reach it. Interesting. It's so unusual yeah. for visa caps. Usually they're low and then you ha- you end up with these huge backlogs, but this is the opposite. The cap is high enough and the num- and the percentage of workers that come on that visa is very low. So 5% is very low. And I assume that the time frame is varies from the type of work also, like it can be five months or shorter than that. Is that more or less accurate? Yes. I mean, some big farms actually have workers that come and they might be involved in southern states and then they come up the east coast because the harvest time changes. I know of one group that of about 100 people who come and they start out in Georgia and they're harvesting corn there. They come to upstate New York and they're harvesting corn here. And then some of them return to Florida and cut sugarcane. So it just depends on the company. Would those types of workers be able to return the following year or in another year? Do they have that relationship where they could keep coming the same time or is it completely new contracts? Well, so the, the farmer time? will once again apply. He'll show a labor shortage and he may or he or she may contact workers that have come in the past that they're content with to invite them back or there are some workers they may choose not to invite them back. So it's up to the farmer, the producer. What would happen if somebody were to start a family while they're working here on one of those temporary visas? If they do not return on the end date of their visa, they would be out of status and they could be deported. And that would, if they do become deported, that would prohibit them probably from being able to work through this program another time. They would not be able to work in the program. Gotcha. There's a 10-year ban. They would not be able to reapply for the program for 10 years. Okay. What type of oversight is there for farms who hire undocumented workers? I mean, the the percentages seem so high. I have to wonder, is there much oversight? Okay. No, there isn't. Why not? Especially considering the climate with you know how people tend to feel about immigration, why is it because it's just economically more advantageous, or like what what are some of the reasons why that is? So a worker, let's say a worker comes to the U.S. and they're not detained at the border, they can buy a social security card for about five hundred dollars. They show a social security card to the farmer. And he puts that in his database and the, you know, they, the farmers have said they're not, they're not able to determine if that's real or not. That's not a skill that they have. Um, The main 
disincentive is that those people can be deported at any time. And there are certain parts of the country, a hundred mile around the border, where immigration officials can stop any immigrant and ask them for papers. So there are periods where there is very intensive immigration enforcement. Sometimes there's local law enforcement will refer cases to immigration, but they typically don't because they know that so many of the workers on dairy farms are here without proper documentation. And you, you can put a, a farm out of business. And as the, as the bumper sticker says, no farms, no food. You know, it seems like it would be advantageous to everyone to find ways to incentivize more of those H-2A visas being used and being But they can't be used for major sectors of agriculture, like dairy, any kind of year-round agriculture. They're not, those visas are are not available to those farms that do year-round agriculture. And so there's year-round agriculture that takes place that's beyond the harvest. Let's say, for example, you have an apple orchard. You plant trees, you prune trees, you weed, and you harvest, and you pack. So there's lots of activities that are outside of the harvest period. So who does that year-round? Most, as I said, their workers who do that year round, they tend to be undocumented because there has been no immigration reform in this country for so many years. And so there's no path to citizenship. There's no way, even, you know, people who have U.S. born children, their U.S. born children can petition for a parent when they're 18 years old. But let's say you are, you know, you, the farm worker, are 20 years old and you have a child when you're 25 and that child can petition for you when you're in your 40s. That means at least you have 18 years where you're living as an undocumented person trying to avoid any contact with law enforcement. And And if you're undocumented, You can't simply go home and then return without running the risk of being detained at the border. So that's why the statistics are that, um, as I said earlier on, almost half of all foreign-born agricultural workers have spent 20 or more years living in the U.S., So had we had an immigration reform in those 20 years, um, many of them have children, they could have applied for an adjustment of status. But we have had a stalled immigration system. And currently there, as you mentioned, there is no legal way for them to fix that status. They would would literally have to go back and then probably face a 10-year bar before they could apply for any but, but that's where the quotas come in. You had said something earlier about quotas. So let's say you are from Mexico 
and you are applying, you know, you're applying for, um, you'd like to come to the U.S. I haven't looked at it recently, but the quotas are limited. So if you apply today, this is 2021, your application would come up for consideration. It was uh, 18 years from now. So 2039. So that's when your application comes up for consideration. So those 18 years, which is not a small number of years, your application isn't even considered. Because that demand is so high and the number allowed is not meeting that demand, essentially. And so as I, as I said, um, 69% of the farm workers are born in Mexico. So that is a very difficult um, country to apply for a visa because of the backlogs in, in the application process. We focused mostly on farm workers specifically in this conversation, but what other type of seasonal work that these H-2A visas? No, the H-2A visa is only for farm workers. Okay, I see. There are other types of seasonal work visas, is that correct? No, H-2A covers agriculture, which could be um, somewhat... So if you have a Christmas tree farm, that's that's agriculture. Um, you know, so it's it's broad in terms of what falls under that visa, but it's only agriculture. There are other types of visas, which are H-2B. That's a different visa. Um, and I'm not really the best person to speak about that. But right. that's for other kinds of jobs. I'm just talking about H-2A. Sure. Before we close up, are there other major things that, I mean, someone who's coming to this who's maybe somewhat familiar with maybe what's happening in the news with immigration, but maybe has never really spent much time thinking about agriculture, what else would be helpful for us to know about just that situation? And I mean, you've addressed some of the, a lot of the challenges, I think, about why it is almost impossible to do legally, at least at this point. But is there other information that we that would be beneficial for kind of a general person to know? One of the things that is unusual about those people who come to work in agriculture is that they typically come to work, not to stay. And since I've interviewed hundreds of workers, um, the story is typically that they leave home because they don't see an economic future for themselves. Many come from very rural areas of Mexico and Guatemala, and their parents were subsistence corn producers. And they are they know they don't see an economic option. So their vision is to come to the US to work very hard and send money home little by little to support family members or to build a house or to start up a business with the idea of going back. And that's a different immigration story than some of the immigrants of of years gone by where they were leaving a situation, starting a new life, but there wasn't that idea of going back. And in this population, the farm workers tend to be quite young and they want to go back. In fact, one of the interviews that I did with a worker, uh, he was going back. 
And when I asked him why he was leaving, he, he said, I gave my youth to this farm and now I want to have a life. Um, so it was really interesting that, that his goal was to come um, make enough money to pay back the loan that he had to, to make to be able to come to support family at home and then to build a house or buy some animals or start a business. And so that's the part of the immigration story that sometimes isn't as obvious um, from the outside. And I think particularly during the COVID-19 pandemic, um, people became more aware of food, how to access food and more aware of the difficulties of accessing fresh produce. But I think the major thing is when we think about food, do we think about a grocery store or a farmer's market? Or do we think about the hands that make that possible? And in this time, the farm workers worked throughout COVID. And as a result, they have experienced COVID in a very intensive way. Um, and I think one of the things that we, we will be facing soon is that a significant number of those people who had COVID and have recovered from COVID um, may have what's referred to as long haul COVID. And because the symptoms persist. And I think for other workforces, they would, those kinds of workers would eventually apply for some kind of disability. For these workers, for those workers that continue to labor on farms to put, keep food coming to our tables, the undocumented workers will not have access to any kind of relief. And so one of the big issues for all of us is to honor those essential workers by really pushing that there's an immigration reform so that they will be treated in the way that they deserve to be treated and that they will have access to the protections that were put into place for all other essential workers. Well, thank you for spending this time with us, sharing your expertise to help us better understand how this, how the system works and doesn't. Where can people learn more about you and your work? I would recommend that if people have a specific question, they can send an email to farmworkers at cornell.edu and they can check out our website, farmworkers.cornell.edu. And we, we always update that with information that may be of interest to a general public. And we would welcome, welcome your questions and your thoughts. Well, thank you again. You're very welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talking Immigration. If you enjoyed it, please consider sharing with family or friends and leaving a rating or review so more people can learn about this important issue. Have a great week, everyone, and let's keep talking immigration. Immigration.